Okay, so we are today looking at um, a lecture. I've called this the sources of moral theology. And we're going to note that the sources that moral theology draws from are actually the very same as the rest of theology, because it is part of theology. But it does draw on them in a particular manner. And as we'll note, it uses reason and philosophy a lot more than the other branches of theology, which might have some use of it, but not a huge amount. For us, it's a huge thing in a thing we'll call more explicitly later in the course, natural law. So, God gives us revelation. And kind of generally speaking, if we're going to say, what is revelation? It's God speaking. Now, a key point to grasp today is that he speaks in two different ways. He speaks naturally and supernaturally. So when we speak about reason and philosophy we're thinking of him speaking naturally so you look out the window you see the beauty of creation and that is God speaking to you what at that most basic level is he saying he's saying God exists I exist yeah but just naturally, all the time, natural means. You look out the window, you see everything, and even without having the articulation of the terminology of Aristotle's first cause, unmoved mover, you're thinking something made that there is a God. God is speaking to you naturally. Now we're going to note in this course, he also says all kinds of things about the moral life. And there are all kinds of things that we can deduce about moral behavior. So you can deduce that abortion is immoral. You can deduce that murder is immoral. Um, you can deduce that divorce is wrong. You don't need the Bible to know these things. So God just naturally speaks, yeah? Sorry. Uh, when you say murder, you, you specifically say murder, not just killing another human being? I'm specifically meaning murder. We're going to come on to that kind of distinction in more detail later. Um, but yes, what's meant by killing does need to be specified. Unjust killing, in, intentional killing, um, the killing of the innocent. Um, But all of this, you don't need the Bible to know that. The philosophy department, human reason, unaided reason can figure it out. There's another way God speaks, however, supernaturally. Um, so when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
That is not natural revelation. That is him doing something unusual, uh, miraculous, supernatural, as his way of speaking. And he does that again and again in the pages of the Old Testament, ultimately in fulfillment, in completion, in the fullness of time, he supernaturally says everything he has to say in the person of Jesus Christ. And that gives us a thing we call, uh, using the language of the epistle of Jude, the deposit of faith. So if you think of a deposit in a bank, it's there to be drawn from. Um, Jude says it's given once for all, given to the saints for all the centuries to come, always there in the bank for us to draw from. Though if we take out, it somehow also remains there for other generations. Yeah. But this notion is given, ready for us to draw from it. Now, how does that come to us? Well, we're going to note in a, this lecture comes to us in tradition, comes to us in the Bible, and it comes to us in the magisterium. I'm going to note that these three things all hold together. I'm going to note also when we speak of tradition with a capital T, how does that happen? Through many small t, little traditions. So these same things here that we knew naturally, we also know supernaturally. So Moses meets God on the mountaintop and he knows God exists, but knows it supernaturally, not just naturally. That the Old Testament tells us that um, abortion and murder and divorce are wrong. All kinds of things that we could have figured out by reason, but we can also know them with this direct immediacy of supernatural revelation. So two different ways that God speaks to us, even though he's not saying a different thing in them. So here, it's not reason and philosophy, here it is faith and theology. And what do we mean by theology? Uh, classic definition, faith seeking understanding. So there's this deposit of faith given how do I receive it? I receive it in faith and I say, I believe you to God. So when I say to someone who tells me something, 
I believe you. I'm saying I trust you as a messenger. I haven't seen it myself, but because I trust you, I accept what you say. That's the process of human faith by which we know all kinds of things. So there are three guys that arrived here this week claiming that they are from a place called Uganda. I have never been there. I have not seen Uganda. If I was an arch skeptic, I would say I refuse to accept that Uganda exists because I've not seen it. But all kinds of human knowledge, we truly know things by accepting, accepting the testimony of witnesses. I believe you, we say to someone. That's the process by which all of this, the deposit of faith, I trust those who are the witnesses that the scripture records. I trust them, what they say they have seen and handed on, that supernatural faith. So we're going to look today at the transmission of revelation. Going to note that that then involves a reception by which you receive what is being transmitted. Yes, yeah, so I wasn't there when the deposit of faith was given once and for all to the apostles. It was transmitted down the centuries. I receive it through this mechanism of tradition, the Bible and the magisterium. But ultimately these two things, natural and supernatural means of God speaking, I as a unified person receive both of those. Faith and reason work together in me. But one can build up the other. Unified person, yeah. So just because I've got faith and I've got reason, I'm not schizophrenic, but it's just a different way of holding to the same truths or truth, depending on what particular thing I'm thinking about. So that's thumbnail sketch. That's what we're doing today. So before we look through the detail, you're all with me so far. Okay, I'm curious. Yeah. I had a question about divorce, but if that was going to be like how we naturally know that that is wrong. How we do. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, that's, that's not a simple thing. We will come back to that in detail later in the course. So I think that's a question I'm going to park for later, but we will have a, a whole session on that. That's an example in this course where uh, there's some things that pastorally speaking, we're going to kind of magnify in our analysis 
because they just are, it's past really relevant. Um, so we'll come back to that. Um, but I'm just wanting to assert kind of here at the beginning that there's an awful lot that what we mean here is naturally knowable. Um, and that's what we'll talk about when we talk about this thing called the natural law. And we're looking at this in the catechism, in the moral life section of the catechism. So kind of curiously, the church has chosen to put the presentation of this, um, the church as mother and teacher in the moral section of the catechism. Because a big part of what she teaches us to be our mother, to be our guide, is the moral life. You know, if you think what your mom taught you, she taught you how to live a lot more than she taught you two plus two makes four and such. So mother as teacher, what's kind of the most pivotal thing in the catechism where to put that, the church has chosen in, to put that in the moral section of the catechism. Okay, let's start going through this in some more detail. So page one of the bundle of lecture notes I've given you. So I start there, the key point I say, moral theology is a branch of theology, and therefore it uses scripture tradition, reason and the magisterium as theology does. So most of what I'm gonna to say to you today is generally speaking true of all theology. Few notes to begin with, what do we mean by this thing revelation? In the incarnate word, God has said everything he has to say. Then quoting directly from the catechism, and this is actually from the earlier part of the catechism, the son is the father's definitive word. So there will be no further revelation after him. Brother Adam, can you read the next quotes there from the catechism? Christ, the son of God, giving us his son, his only word, for he possesses no other. He spoke everything to us at once in the sole word, and he has no more to say, because what he spoke before to, to the prophets in part, he has now spoken all at once by giving us the all who is his son. Now that's a big claim, a big statement the Catechism is making there. We can conclude, among other things, Theology studies God's revelation. Moral theology, therefore. Moral theology has no new sources other than this one definitive revelation. So even when we study a new moral situation like bioethics, all kinds of stuff we look at in bioethics, you might say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about this. Is therefore the church silent? Well, we have this one deposit of faith given once and for all in Jesus Christ, the word has been spoken. Everything God has to say has been spoken. When we do bioethics, everything we're saying, we're tying back to everything there at the beginning. And because our faith tells us he came in the fullness of time, he came at a time when he was able to say everything we need. 
So even when we've got a new situation, we're able to draw on what he gave us there in the beginning. You see, this is a very significant principle and for, and for the moral life. Um, we're saying everything he has to say about how to live in the fullness of time, that's when he came. So it's all been said at that stage. Comments, questions with me? Okay, the main part of today's lecture is how that is transmitted to us, the transmission of revelation. So this deposit, how is it transmitted by both tradition and by scripture? And I'm then quoting this phrase again, the deposit of faith, which there's a quote there, both De Verbum from the Second Vatican Council, which is quoted in the Catechism, which in turn they're both taking this phrase from the Epistle of Jude, chapter 3. So what we're going to do the rest of this lecture is we're basically going to take each of these three, tradition, Bible, magisterium, and there's kind of a page of notes on each of them, but then we're also going to have a page on reason. So let's start on page two, tradition. What do we mean here, tradition? So I start by noting the revelation of the incarnate word is not confined to the Bible. Josh, can you read that quote from the Catechism? The Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is the religion of the word of God, a word which is not a written and mute word, but the word is incarnate and living. Okay, so the Catechism there is kind of taking issue with a number of other religions in the world. Islam, a religion of the book. The Book of Mormon, a religion of the book. We have a book, but we are not a religion of the book. We are a religion of the word. So the book is really important to us, which is what we're going to come on to in the next page. But actually, even before the book existed, tradition existed. Even before the book existed, the faith was being handed on. So the canon of scripture was not fixed for a couple centuries. Those couple centuries, did the church not really exist yet? No, the church was growing, working, existing, handing on everything that had been said. Tradition was there even before the scripture. Yeah, even before scripture was written, but certainly before scripture was compiled in the canon. Yeah, so you've got all the letters, the gospels, those were fixed in the canon quite late, what is the fourth century? Um, Council of Hippo. Um, but you can wind that back even before the epistles were written, the revelation was being handed on even then. Okay, so back to my written notes here. Revelation was being transmitted before New Testament scripture was written. How? By tradition. So 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you have learned, whether by word or by our epistle. I, there was this verbal transmission of revelation. Now I'm now going to distinguish for you in these notes, tradition with a capital T and traditions with a small t. 
And this isn't a distinction in the catechism. It's a tradition, I think, articulated by Eve Conger first. Um, so it's a kind of a linguistic play, but I think it's quite a useful uh, distinction. So in this distinction, tradition with a capital T means the total transmission of the faith that occurs very via many particular small t traditions. And it is the source of the transmission of revelation or a source. What in contrast, so if the total thing is tradition capital T, small t traditions, well, what are they? Customs, prayers, hymns, words, the examples of the saints, the writings of the saints, the writings of canonized theologians. But no single individual small t tradition can be pointed to as encapsulating the whole revelation. Yeah, so here's my rosary. I say my rosary every day since I was, I was trying to think just a couple of days ago, whether it was 18 or 19, I started saying the rosary every day. I've said it every day since then. Really important in my life. Um, John the 23rd says it's the summary of the whole gospel, but it isn't the whole gospel. This is not the capital T tradition. The totality of the tradition is bigger even than the rosary. Even my favorite hymn, even my capital T tradition, it's, it's the whole thing. But how does that whole thing get handed on? By many little particulars. And all of those little particulars together, they're handing on. That's what traditio means, to hand on. They're handing on this revelation made once and for all. And some of those traditions come and go. So my favorite hymn, if the church exists for a million years, if we wait that long until the second coming, in all likelihood, my favorite hymn will at some stage get forgotten and cease from the memory of man. But the tradition will still be handed on. So there are little T traditions that come and go. They may be very precious to us, but they aren't the whole thing. Does that distinction make sense? So the two things, the small T tradition isn't the whole thing, but it's also important to be clear, you can't have that whole thing being handed on without lots of those little T traditions. So when you get some modernists saying, oh, we need to get rid of traditions and whatever, well, then there's no way of handing it on. You need something to hand it on. There's a reason. It's, it's profoundly unhuman to try and get rid of all tradition. It's just what we are as human beings. You think in your family, you think in your groups, your societies, whatever, you have little things you do together that hand on your, your little common way of life. Okay, with me, so, yeah? What's your favorite hymn? Oh, that's a tough question. You said it a lot, so I figured you wanted someone to ask. Uh, yeah, okay, actually I'm not sure. Probably Soul of My Savior which in this country they do to the wrong tune. 
imagine having your favorite tune, favorite hymn, and they do it to the wrong tune. My other would probably be Faith of Our Fathers, which again you do to the wrong tune. So in England, when we sing Faith of Our Fathers, it's got a militant, marching kind of punch your enemy in the face kind of tune to it. Here you do it to the gentle, peaceful, oh bread of heaven tune we'd have in the UK. So um, just very different. Anyway, so. <laughs> But in the English context, when we were trying to remember the martyrs who died, when we were this persecuted minority, it was really important to have a kind of militaristic, strong hymn tune. In every context, how the faith gets handed on, the traditio needs to take a different form because it's, it's not static. That's part of what the tradition is. It is a living thing. Okay, back to my notes here. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. Note a single deposit of faith, not two isolated deposits, that the two together make up this deposit. A scripture can't be read without tradition. So the conclusion for us in our field, moral theology, moral theology must use the tradition and draw on little t traditions, especially draw on previous moral theologians. So how do I study moral theology? How do I teach moral theology? I don't just sit in my office by myself and think profoundly. Um, I go to the library and I look at old books. I look at what wise people before me said, what wise saints before me said on whatever topic I'm looking for. The traditio, the handing on that has happened before. Okay, page three, scripture. Now, scripture is a curious thing for us as moral theologians because we want to say it's really, really important. It's the word of God. We want to say, because the Second Vatican Council in particular says you, in moral theology especially, you need a renewed appreciation of scripture. But actually, scripture can be rather difficult to use. That's what we're going to note here. So scripture. Scripture must be used to study moral theology. Theology is the study of God's word, and scripture is the privileged written expression of the word of God. Uh, Adam, can you read those two quotes there? Everything in... Everything in the scripture has been divinely inspired of its uses to instruct us, to expose our errors, to correct our faults, to educate the good. Special attention needs to be given to the development of moral theology, its scientific exposition, Okay, so what does scripture give us? It contains the Ten Commandments, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It gives us lists of virtues. It gives us examples of good living, like the faith of Abraham and the loyal friendship of David and Jonathan. And then it also gives us the context of the moral life, things like descriptions of family life. I, we can understand the meaning of marriage by looking at good families and marriages in scripture. So there's all kinds of stuff scripture gives us. Great. But I say scripture does not contain definitions. So it gives us a list of virtues, but then it doesn't define the virtues and it doesn't define virtue itself. 
tells you to be chaste, but it doesn't tell you what chastity is. Then it doesn't give us issues raised by modern science like IVF. And it contains few specific laws concerning moral practice. So if you're wanting a nice long list of laws for your moral theology, actually the Bible just doesn't have many. And then I note worse. This is where it gets really unhelpful. What does scripture contain that's problematic? Well, it contains all kinds of superseded Old Testament dietary laws. So it forbids you to eat pork. It contains superseded marriage laws, like the Mosaic permission to divorce and remarry. It has bad examples, not just good examples. So David taking Bathsheba, and David's one of the good guys, but he goes and takes Bathsheba. It has confusing examples. So Solomon, who had hundreds of wives. Abraham, who took a concubine. Now that's very unhelpful if we're gonna use scripture as a source for moral theology. Um, now I note here, a little aside, let's pause before we go on. God endorsed neither of these. So I'm going through this with the sexual morality course at the moment, but just briefly to make this point. So Abraham takes a concubine, but God does not tell him to take a concubine. Abraham takes a concubine and for all of the centuries that follow, the descendants of his wife and his concubine are at enmity with each other, the Jews and the Arabs to this day. How do you, there's a thing called the narrative approach to interpreting scripture, the narrative way that scripture teaches us. Most of the time when the Bible teaches you, it doesn't say, do not do what Abraham did here, it was a bad thing. Rather, it describes the disastrous consequences and you're supposed to realize this is being recounted to us to tell us not to do the same thing. Gideon who has 70 wives and his sons who are because of different wives being at enmity and jealousy with each other the sons likewise one son murders all 70 of the others. How does the Bible teach us by narrative that story tells us don't do what Gideon did and have all those wives. So, on one hand, scripture is a source of moral theology. It's confusing. It's not clear. If you only use the Bible like a good Protestant, it's not very helpful. You need something more than just the Bible. But, we are saying the Bible is inerrant, we're saying the Bible is our authority. Um, okay, two other things here. Confusing science. So I note there are allusions to the ancient notion that the embryo was formed out of the menstrual blood of the woman uh, in Job. Um, so the Bible doesn't quite say that, but it makes an allusion to it. That's kind of not helpful. And then culturally conditioned practices. For example, St. Paul's injunction for men not to have long hair. Now you all know that passage. St. Paul speaks quite strongly on this point. But can you find a single example in the tradition, the centuries that follow, of a saint who says, you must not have long hair because St. Paul says you shouldn't. 
curiously, from the very beginning of the church, everybody understood this was a culturally conditioned prohibition. The tradition interpreted scripture and knew the sense of the faith, knew that this held in that place at that time and was important there, but it isn't part of the deposit handed on for all the church for all ages to come. But it does mean, it's another example of how scripture can be problematic for our use in moral theology. Okay, final little subsection at the bottom of that page, what I've called interpretation. So I say the ambiguities in the above mean that scripture needs to be interpreted and interpreted in two ways, by the tradition, i.e. how saints and good theologians have understood it, and by the magisterium, which we haven't mentioned yet, but how official church documents have understood it. And I note that this twofold need for interpretation holds for any other branch of theology too. Okay, before we turn the page, we've had tradition, we've had scripture. Comments, thoughts so far? You see the issues we're flagging up here? About how it's really important that we acknowledge the authority of tradition and we acknowledge the authority of scripture. If you don't, you are just making yourself out to be God speaking to everyone. The notion of you as a priest preaching, you as a Christian speaking to the faith to others, you are handing on something that isn't yours, but that you have received that God said. That means I have, when I'm speaking, when I'm thinking, to be looking to something before me. This is the notion, the very essence of faith. And I truly know things when I accept what God himself has said. How does St. Thomas put it in the hymn, truth himself speaks truly or there's nothing true. That two plus two makes four, I know that to be true as a certainty of knowledge. The Eucharist, what looks like bread, what tastes like bread, what touches like bread, I truly know with certainty that that is God himself come down on the altar because he has said so. I don't hold that as an opinion. I don't hold that as something probably true. No, I, I know it with certainty because faith gives me certainty. What God has said is true. Okay, so we've been looking here at this column here, supernaturally what's handed on, tradition, the Bible. Before we look at the magisterium, we're going to look at this column here, what can be known naturally. So over the page, page four. Now everything here, we're going to have uh, two lectures, we're going to have an entire week of the course looking at what the Catechism says about the natural law later. 
but I'm going to try and articulate the kind of the key point here in 10 minutes today. So, revelation and the natural revelation of God's moral law. So the key thing here, there are two forms of revelation, two forms of God speaking. That first there is supernatural revelation, God's revelation by supernatural means. Two examples I give there, the revealing of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, or the Beatitudes that the Lord Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount. These are not ordinary things. These aren't things that get repeated, happens once, it's miraculous, it's supernatural. God speaking the moral law. But two, there's also natural revelation, which is God's revelation by natural means. The way of phrasing that, what can be known by reason, unaided reason, what can be known naturally, to use the language of Romans, and what we call technically in moral theology the natural law. Then I give the example, revealing his existence by the beauty and order of the cosmos. So the Ten Commandments can be known naturally. Honour your father and mother. Do you need to be a Christian to know that you should honour your father and mother? No. Unaided reason can know that you should honour your father and mother. Unaided reason can know that theft is wrong. Each of the Ten Commandments is knowable by unaided reason. There's a whole appreciation of what they mean that is added with the light of faith in the person of Jesus Christ. But the core of those Ten Commandments, each of them can be known by unaided reason. Okay, a few bits of terminology here, um, words you may have heard. So there's this thing called natural theology, um, which refers to the study of God's revelation outside of supernatural means, whereas theology usually implies a reference to supernatural revelation. So you might, in libraries, in old reference books, find reference to natural theology. What they're meaning is all the stuff we can kind of know naturally. Briefly, what do we mean by the word reason? So we're going to use this word reason. The Catechism uses the word reason. Um, clarifies it by talking about unaided reason. So what is reason? Reason is everything that can be known without supernatural revelation. So let me phrase that differently. You don't have the Bible. You don't have the tradition. You have never met a Christian. You live somewhere on an island that has never had a missionary come there. What are you able to know? Reason is what you're able to know. If we think about this historically, the Greek philosophers in Athens give us a vision of what the intelligent man, the reasonable man, with careful study, with careful thought, is able to figure out. And Aristotle 
writes the Nicomachean Ethics. He describes the virtuous life. Um, that work as a description of what we mean by reason. So you've all been studying philosophy already. When you study philosophy, you don't quote the Bible. You're not allowed to say, ah oh, yes, Saint so-and-so said such and such. Uh, you're not allowed to quote Pope whoever. All of those are sources of knowledge you don't use when you do philosophy. What the philosophy department knows, that's reason. Does the philosophy department sometimes get a little confused? Yeah, are there a few the philosophers that kind of talk a lot of rubbish? Um, yeah, uh, so we'll note when we look at the natural law that although it's possible for unaided reason to figure out all these things, it's also difficult for unaided reason. So in order that we might know things easily and immediately, and many people might, God gives us supernatural revelation even when he's repeating things that were already knowable naturally. Okay, a couple more specifics here in terms of terminology. I know two ways that reason functions. So a priori, reason using only first principles devoid of any experience, i.e. devoid of any knowledge gained by experience. And a posteriori, reason using knowledge gained by experience. For example, scientific observation, apples falling from trees. Okay, and then I use this phrase, the natural law. So what's meant, we're gonna come back to this again and again, what's meant by this phrase, the natural law? It's the knowledge of the moral law gained by reason. As I said already, the 10 commandments can be known by unaided reason even without supernatural revelation. Then I use the word experience. So this is a big thing. When you study theology, which you haven't started studying theology yet, generally speaking, the theology department doesn't use experience. It uses scripture and tradition. Um, in moral theology, we do use experience. And we will often say, we can demonstrate, we can know the proper way to behave by looking at what happens to humans when they do kind of the opposite and such. Um, okay, back to my notes here. Experience. Reason a posteriori uses experience. Thus experience is a source of knowledge of the moral law. Example there, experience shows Sex outside marriage weakens marriage. Reason can thus conclude sex outside marriage is a sin against marriage. And note that experience needs to be analyzed carefully. Um, so you get statistical surveys, statistical surveys that show us certain things about humans. The conclusions you draw from that need to be done with good philosophy but it is part of what philosophy is able to figure out looking at human experience.
where does the Bible, supernatural revelation, sorry, no, super, revelation in the natural law, so Humana Vitae phrases it this way, it says, natural law is illuminated and enriched by divine revelation. So all those things that could be known already by the natural law, they somehow are enriched in our appreciation of them in the light of tradition, the Bible and such. So to conclude this whole little section here, in terms of how this relates to moral theology, reason, experience, scripture, tradition, all can teach us about right and wrong. All can provide sources that we draw on as we're doing our moral theology. But I say all four need to be interpreted. I, we need to see how they're used by theologians before us saints and preachers before us, magisterial documents before us. Okay, let's pause there a second. Uh, comments, thoughts? Talked about tradition, the Bible, what we mean by naturally knowable and reason. Observations, questions? How much of this have you heard before? A lot. Yeah, okay. But the bits of kind of trying to apply this to moral theology, I'm imagining there's a, a focus there you probably haven't had focus before. Yeah. Would you use a priori um, reasoning to in any part of like theology? I don't know if you do, but I guess it would then be philosophy. Yeah, not theology. Do you mean would we use it in moral theology? Oh, you, would you use it like any any branch of theology? Could we use a posteriori? A posteriori. Yeah, use that for moral theology, but do you use a priori for any other branch? Not really, not, not in practice. Um, because theology draws on philosophy, it can draw on it in all its different forms, including a priori, but it would only be kind of the beginning of articulating something because theology is really concerned with the fullness of what God has said in Jesus Christ, the supernatural. Well, ask Immanuel Kant, because he was really big on this. Um, so Immanuel Kant distrusted experience. Uh, if you remember that whole kind of thing in, in skeptical philosophy, which Descartes kind of articulates from a different angle, you don't trust your senses, you don't trust experience. But Kant saying, well, but we do have reason and first principles. How can we strip away any bit of data that comes from experience that we can't trust and just have logical principles that necessarily follow a priori. Well, the example he gives, which is curious in that it's not 
something that very easily follows uh, is that lying is always wrong. Uh, Kant, says that. Kant says that, yeah. Categorical imperative. He says if you universalize that practice, lying, everything falls apart. And you can only behave in a way that you can universalize everybody doing that. So he gets a very precise, complicated way of defining reason in order to get to his methodology. The only reason I'm throwing that in here is that that is part of how reason functions a priori. And so if you can create a natural law argument genuinely using authentic reason a priori, then it will give you genuine truths about how to live even without making any reference to Jesus Christ and Moses and Abraham and anybody. Why is this important? Among other ways, how do we engage with the outside world? They have reason. Well, we have reason too. And so we have a common thing we can speak about even before we start talking about Jesus Christ. I can say that in the public sphere, abortion should be illegal because they with reason are able to know that just as I with reason and faith am able to know it. Whereas if it's only the Bible, you know, when the Protestants are saying something should be illegal, they're only able to say, because Jesus says so. Well, that doesn't really work as an argument with someone who doesn't accept the Lord Jesus. So there's some pretty serious practical implications about this whole thing about reason being able to lead us to the moral law. So it made me think of a lot of my Protestant friends have kind of gotten to the mindset of like, well, if it doesn't affect me, then like, you know, people have their own, um, you know, views of you know, certain moral things because the Bible doesn't say so, therefore I don't know. But it's like, that's where they're missing having the philosopher, you know, reason. Yeah. And they also miss things that in the Bible, without tradition, just kind of don't make sense. So there's a book on purity that will be on our bibliography later in this course that I look at in the sexual morality course. Um, a great book on purity written by a few, a couple of evangelicals. But because they can't find the word masturbation in the Bible, therefore they feel they can't actually say it's always wrong. So lust is in the Bible. And so, that, well, what if you could non-lustfully abuse yourself? So you end up going, if you try and separate the Bible from tradition and the Bible from reason, it gets really crazy. Um, so really what we're trying to articulate in this lecture is how, what do we draw from all of these things, um, but that they all reinforce each other. Let's move on. The Magisterium. This is a big thing. 23 minutes I'm going to try and spend on this because there are lots of sections within this. Um, we could spend days on this. 
which wouldn't really be proper for this introductory course. <laughs> but, um, okay, the Magisterium, page five of the notes. The word Magisterium comes from the Latin word for teacher, magister. That the Magisterium of the Church is the teaching voice of the Church. And it works in many different ways. We talk about the ordinary Magisterium, which is the Pope, or the CDF with his authority coming from Rome, also the bishops throughout the world in communion with the Pope. That's happening all the time, always teaching, always teaching, always teaching. That's the ordinary magisterium. Extraordinary magisterium, specific moments. The Pope ex cathedra solemnly pronounces a thing to be in his teaching. Or the Pope with an ecumenical council defines a dogma, issues an anathema, promulgates canons specifying, defining uh, the truth that has been handed on once and for all. So an ordinary and an extraordinary way that this magisterium, this teaching is happening all the time. What is the role of the magisterium? Magisterium's role, to teach, to remind, to define. So to teach, well, that's what the word means, to remind. Here I footnote Ratzinger, even before he was Pope, who phrases it this way. The true sense of the teaching authority of the Pope consists in his being the advocate of the Christian memory. That's a beautiful image. So the memory, what was handed on to us back in the beginning, reminding us in every era, the Pope's authentic role, remind, hand that on. Third though, also to define. So when new issues come up for debate, the church, the magisterium, the teaching voice defines, gets a phraseology, gets a canon, gets an anathema, gets a dogma, and says this precisely must be held or must be rejected. Matthew sixteen nineteen, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. I the authority to define was given by Christ to the church. John sixteen thirteen, when the spirit of truth comes, he will lead you to the complete truth. Uh, the church is guided in its teaching definitions. Then Luke ten sixteen, he that hears you, hears me, and he who rejects you, rejects me. Uh, it's truly Christ who teaches when his church teaches. Then morality, teaching morality, this includes the moral life. So divine revelation covers not only doctrine, but also how to live morality. The promise of infallibility specifically covers both faith and morals. So the papal definition at Vatican I, the collegial definition of infallibility at Vatican II, both specify that this covers faith and morals. Kind of a bit curiously, authority also is given for interpreting the natural law. So the natural law is in the green section here, what's naturally knowable. But the magisterium can define that something is in here. Because this is kind of part of the deposit of faith. 
So quoting Humana Vitae 18, the church is the guardian and interpreter of the natural law. So some question gets raised, is this part of the natural law? The magisterium of the church is able to say yes or no. Smaller font, I say, the natural law is known by reason, not by supernatural revelation, but authority to interpret and define the natural law is held by the magisterium. Yeah, Michael? You mean, is there a, a circle there? Yeah. Um, this, yeah, that's a good question. Um, this, it's not entirely a circle and that it comes from Jesus Christ. So the words given to Peter didn't come from Peter. They were written down by the church, but they didn't come from the church. They came from Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to now specify something a little more technical. Three types of assent. Now first, what do I mean by the word assent? Assent is a type of agreeing to something. So somebody tells you something and you accept it or not. Um, so Adam comes running in and he says, there's this amazing accident that's happened outside um, this car hit this truck that bounced uh, 50 feet up in the air, landed down and squashed. Um, anyway, some utterly spectacular thing he comes in and tells us. You either assent or don't assent to what he said. That's what we mean by assent. I either say, Adam, you're a joker and a liar and I just that just I don't believe you or I say you are a bit of a joker uh, but actually I trust you and you said that and I I believe you I assent why do we assent to something yeah, we always assent to somebody if I said I assent to what he said because I think it makes sense then I'm not assenting to what he said, I'm just assenting to my own thinking, yeah? Assent is, I accept it because the witness has told me so. That's the structure of faith. Three types of assent distinguished here. One, divine faith. This is to that which is revealed and infallibly taught by the ordinary or extraordinary magisterium. So God has said this. I accept it because God has said it. Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist. Why do I accept that? Because God has said so. It's handed on to me by the church, but it's actually God himself who has said so. Is handed on to me the by the church in an infallible pronouncement by the church. Therefore, it has this category of what's called divine faith. It's being infallibly taught by the church. 
but it's actually God himself who has said it in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we call it divine faith. There's a second category of things called ecclesial faith, where I accept it. I, I give assent to that which was not revealed, but is connected with revelation and is infallibly taught by the ordinary or extraordinary magisterium. So an example um, the church gives in that regard is, um, actually we'll come on to see examples in the column in a minute. So let's not look at the columns yet. Uh, just finish this page and then we'll look at those columns to kind of expand what's meant here. So it's, it, the Bible doesn't ex itself say it, but the church infallibly pronounces it because you can't understand what the Bible holds, what the deposit of faith articulates, without holding to that as a connection. Then there's another category, religious submission of will and intellect. So this is not faith, but it's a kind of polite, accepting, submitting of my will and intellect to what the church has taught in a non-infallible way. But I don't accept it with that same certainty, definitiveness, with which I would accept something that was infallibly taught. Adam. I was going to ask for an example, but I see it. Sorry. Okay, and we'll come on to those in a minute. Um, okay, before we go on to that columns, how does that teaching happen, that defining happen? There are two types of teaching acts what are called defining acts of the extraordinary magisterium and non-defining acts of the ordinary magisterium. A little confusingly, both types of those can be infallible and both can concern either matters of defined faith, revelation, or ecclesial faith, things connected with revelation. And most confusingly, something can be definitive by a non-defining act. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds a little confusing. Let's see what on earth is meant there by looking at all those columns in that table. So we've got this page here, which is on... So I've given it to you as a separate page. It also appears as page 11 within the lecture notes bundle. Okay, so looking here, you can see the columns. First, the category theological faith or divine faith. Then the column, uh, no, rather, the row. Then the row ecclesial faith, what the church says. And then religious submission of will and intellect. Let's look over at the example section for, to kind of first. So, Articles of faith in the creed, Christological dogmas, Marian dogmas, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, um, then a moral example, the grave immorality of direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being. All of those, God has directly said, and the church has defined that God has directly said it, 
Therefore, that is what we call divine faith, theological faith. And we have a special word for people who don't accept it, heresy. Ecclesial faith. So broadly speaking, what is ecclesial faith? I trust what the church solemnly defines because Jesus said he would guide the church. But Jesus himself doesn't say this particular thing, his church does. I accept it with certainty because his church has defined it with an infallible, what's called definitive teaching. Examples there, right-hand column. These are connected to revealed truth. So by logical necessity, the illicitness of euthanasia, the illicitness of prostitution and fornication, the priestly ordination being reserved only to men. Those, the, all these quotes here on this category are from the CDF document that came out in 1998, the doctrinal commentary on the uh, Professio Fidei. So the new faculty members who made that oath, that profession, signed it, not quite in blood, but on the altar there. Very important, solemn public act. The explanation of what all those words meant is in this document, many three pages of which I've copied in those notes for you, but this is what is kind of being articulated in this table. So let's think euthanasia. Euthanasia is not def um, explicitly referred to in the Bible, but it is defined by the church with a degree of solemnity, with a degree of repetition, in a manner that is definitive, that is infallible, I accept that definition, that teaching to me, not because it's in the Bible, not because it's in explicitly that original deposit of faith, but because the church that Christ promised to guide has taught it with this degree of solemnity and precision. And the church has the capacity to teach infallibly about things that aren't in the deposit of faith if they are necessarily connected with what's in the deposit of faith. So euthanasia, how can you, the whole thing about caring for the sick, caring for the dying, all kinds of things about the dignity of, of the, the weak, um, all of which is in the scriptures, is a big thing in our Christian tradition. Um, by logical necessity, euthanasia is therefore excluded, and the church has solemnly taught that. And so the CDF gives euthanasia as an example of that. Uh, priestly ordination being reserved only to men. So the fact that there are priests, that there are a sacrament of ordination, this we have uh, by direct word of the Lord, part of the deposit of faith, 
you have to accept that as part of divine faith, theological faith. To know that that, what is a priest, that only a man, um, the definition of that is not in the Bible, but by logical necessity is articulated by the magisterium of the church in a solemnity of definition that means it is definitive, is infallible, but that we accept it on ecclesial faith, not divine faith. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, Michael? So when we say that theological faith is irreformable, do we imply that something like ecclesial faith can, can be reformable? No. That's not what's indicated by that. Uh, the CDS trying to just use different terms for these things. So it wouldn't really make sense to call it definitive if it was reformable. Yeah. So that using a different word that actually has the same inherent meaning, but they're using a different word so that you are making the distinction. Why do I hold to it for two different reasons? Divine faith, God himself has said it and the church has defined that he said it. Ecclesial faith, it's connected with what God said and the church has defined that it has to be held and issued the level specificity of definition that is called infallible. And then there are all kinds of things that are taught in a non-definitive manner that we are not required to hold divine faith, ecclesial faith. We are to be respectful towards um, kind of what that respect is then depends on who said it in what context and whatever. Um, the curious thing when you go through the full list of the, the CDF is there isn't much of importance that isn't really in that list. Um, you can see this is a big topic that we could spend, you could have a whole course on this. Um, that isn't my course. Um, this is just an overview introducing some things to you. So for us in moral theology, what this means is when we're trying to know what to hold in faith, what to hold as Christians about how to live, we need to look to the magisterium and we can look to the magisterium in these different ways. Okay, summary of today's lecture. The sources of moral theology, what do we draw from? Well, God has spoken. He speaks naturally and supernaturally. Naturally, everything the philosophy department can figure out, and actually that's an awful lot of stuff the philosophy department can figure out. But he has particularly, specifically, directly, supernaturally given us this thing called the deposit of faith, 
that is transmitted through this threefold mechanism of tradition, the Bible and the magisterium. And we accept that, we receive it, we say, I believe you to the Lord in accepting what he has said and handed on through his church, which he established as the mechanism of passing that on to us.